You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 107. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Dea Schlossberg. Dea is an extremely talented filmmaker who was unexpectedly arrested after documenting a civil disobedience action in northern North Dakota back in October of 2016. There was a wave of arrests of journalists connected with pipeline protests in the fall of 2016, but Dea's arrest really shook the filmmaking world because she was charged with three counts of conspiracy and was facing a maximum penalty of 45 years in prison without having actually committed a single crime. I was one of the filmmakers impacted by this spate of arrests and by Dea's story, and it actually inspired me to, to travel out to Standing Rock and get involved in covering these types of issues here on the podcast. So I'm extremely excited to have Dea on as a guest uh, for today's show. In addition to her recent work covering issues related to oil pipelines and civil disobedience action, she was also a producer on Josh Fox's most recent film, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, which in my opinion is one of the most powerful climate change films to be released in the past few years. I'm Dea Schlossberg. I am a filmmaker. I focus on stories that are at the intersection of human rights and climate change. In my current project and development, I'm leaning more on the human rights side, but they're so interconnected, it's hard to divide those two things. That's something that, that I've been exploring a lot here, and that's kind of the sort of the, the future direction that, that I'm trying to sort of steer this podcast in, is sort of showing folks how interconnected this topic of conservation is with so many other issues. But I mean, human rights and civil rights sort of like as a central component of that. So you're a filmmaker with a particular interest in covering uh, climate change issues. And, and like you said, sort of these connections that exist between this issue and uh, human rights, civil rights, lots of other issues. It's a very broad scope of topics. And uh, this work that you do is, has gotten you into some trouble in recent months. Um, I'm going to start right off here uh, with having you explain sort of uh, what happened on, on October 11th um, when you were arrested in North Dakota um, filming sure. a group of climate change activists. Can you, can you set the stage uh, of this action that, that you were covering for us? Sure. Um, so there were a group of activists that felt like they had taken all the legal actions they could throughout their lives to combat climate change. And this was a group of people who felt like they were kind of at the legal limits of what of what individuals can do going through all the, the mainstream kind of routes. And then it wasn't enough. We keep having the hottest year on record every year. We keep having the hottest month on record every month. This particular group of people, and I would tend to agree, would would say that we are in a climate emergency. And if we don't act very quickly, things will will continue to get worse. 
I mean, we just saw that tornadoes came through the south, killed some folks and devastated a large area. But anyway, this group decided that the, the most effective thing they could do as individuals was to, to shut down all of the tar sands coming into the United States for a day. Um, so they found the, the five pipelines that bring all Canadian tar sands into the U.S. And it's across four different states. And five people went into the emergency shutoff valve enclosures for five of these pipelines and turned the emergency emergency shutoff valves, effectively stopping all oil sands coming into the U.S., which the White House called the largest or most effective targeted act upon environmental-related infrastructure or fossil fuel-related infrastructure. So I, as somebody who documents things related to climate and having covered a lot of pipeline-related, fossil fuel-related stories in the past, felt that it was important to cover this action. Uh, so I went to North Dakota, and the, the actions were happening in Washington, Montana, North Dakota, and then two pipelines in uh, Minnesota. And I covered the North Dakota action, and I was filming the gentleman shutting down the pipeline from a public road. So the, the group called each of the companies that own the pipelines before they did this to tell them that they were going to do this so that the, the companies could take any um, emergency safety precautions needed. Uh, they didn't want to create more damage. They wanted to stop damage being done. Um, so they gave them a heads up um, and then went in and turned the valves off. Um, these valves are in place so that like local fire departments and stuff can go and and turn off the pipelines if there is a spill, if there is an explosion, you know, they're there for safety. So this wasn't a radical and dangerous act. These people were using the, the emergency shutoffs that the companies themselves put in place. I filmed the whole action. What what did that look like, you know? I mean, where in North Dakota were you? Like, what did, I mean, what, what, what did sort of your surroundings look like? And I mean, you know, what, what were you sort of like hoping to document. I mean, it, in, in sort of a certain context, it's a really dramatic action to take, right? To, to sort of shut, yeah. you know, uh, pull the emergency valves for all these pipelines simultaneously. And, and like you said, you know, cut off the supply of tar sands into the U.S. Uh, over this vast area. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like just thinking about it, like as a filmmaker, you know, right. I mean, what were you hoping to shoot? What, like what, you know, what were you hoping to, to get? I mean, the guy just pulls... Yeah a lever and then walks away and you're like, all right, we did it. I mean, uh, yeah. were, were you anticipating like the police to show up? I mean, what, what were you sort of thinking about or sort of planning, uh, leading up to this? In a way that that's kind of what I wanted to capture the, the non, <laughs> um, how, how non-dramatic it was and how, I guess how simple it is to just say, no, we don't, we don't have to, to use this. Um, the reality is it wasn't all that dramatic visually. Michael, who the, the activist's name was, who was on the site where I was, basically went with a pair of bolt cutters. Uh, this was It was a site in the middle of farmland, rural areas, broken up by um, tree breaks, you know, county roads and dirt roads and, and farmland mostly. There was a chain link enclosure 
Michael went up to the enclosure with with a pair of bolt cutters, cut the little padlock on the on the gate, went inside the enclosure, cut the padlock on the chain, keeping the the valve crank in one place, um, and started turning. It took him quite a while for it to kick in before he could, you know, feel any sort of resistance or hear anything. But it became it became obvious that he was having an effect. It, it, it did start to get louder, and he said it was that it was shaking. And we knew that the police would show up because they had called the company and said they were doing that, and we knew the company had called the police. They in no way wanted to hide any of what they were doing. They were completely transparent about it and why they were doing it. Um, so they weren't, you know, trying to evade the cops or hide anything. So they just waited for the cops to come. Um, and yeah, and so I was, I was there, just capturing all of this. I wasn't exactly sure where it would end up, but I knew as a as a significant act that. I wanted to have it documented, even if it wasn't going to be glorious visually. I felt it was important. Um, and, and yeah, so the cops did come. They told Michael he was under arrest, put him in the cop car. There was another guy there who was acting as the support person. So he figured when Michael got arrested, he would go arrange bail and pick him up from the police station and, and be support in that sense um he had also been taking some pictures he had planned to live stream the shutting down but we were out of service so that didn't happen um so he just took some pictures of this and after they had arrested michael they came over and told him he was under arrest that was a little unexpected but not a shock and after they arrested him they came to the car I was, I was sitting in the car it was super cold and my hands were numb from having filmed it but they came they came over the car and told me uh you are under arrest for being an accessory to a crime and i said well i was i was filming it i am a member of the media i was on public roads it is my right to film and they weren't having it and said no you're you're an accessory to this crime and you're under arrest and took us all into the local police station, split us up. And, and the whole time I was waiting, they were questioning the other guys. I was thinking like, all right, like I'll, when they come in and talk to me, I'll just explain further. There's been a mistake. (laughs) 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 uh, I, I researched um, before doing this and was very clear not to, not to break any laws. I was very aware of what the the risks were. And I, you know, very carefully eschewed those, <laughs> those pitfalls so that I was in, in total compliance with the law. But they, they booked me. Um, I mean, going into this, like, did you think there was any chance that, that this could be a potential outcome? Um, you know, I thought getting arrested might be a potential outcome. I did not think getting charged would be an outcome um, because I knew that I didn't break any laws. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it, at that point it got a little surreal. Um, they had me put all my possessions in a drawer, gave me the orange jumpsuit and shitty little 
jail mattress to carry into the cell. And that was it. They didn't really tell me anything. Um, and it was a small county jail. I was the only female. So I was by myself in my cell and, and um, cell block. Yeah, I, I was alone. And I had no way to contact anybody, no nothing. <laughs> they didn't tell me anything. They didn't give me any information. It was, um, it was pretty scary. I was in there for a few days. Um, and it took, it took a full day before, uh, I was really able to talk to anybody. Uh, my fiance was on the outside, um, back here in New York, calling around frantically, trying to figure out what was going on and how to get in touch with me. And, um, and he learned that he could go through the, the jail system and buy me a calling card and that, and, and get some numbers for me. And so eventually that information was delivered to me and I started calling like crazy, um, just frantically, whoever I could get a hold of and ask them to do research and look up lawyers and figure out numbers and, see what was happening and they were all they all they were all asking me what's happening what's going on and I had no information I was just completely isolated in there after a couple days um I mean they they, they're only allowed to hold people 48 hours technically before telling them what they're charged of and and um having bail hearings and stuff and it had been longer than that and I didn't know what was going on and um, apparently, because of everything that was happening at Standing Rock, uh, North Dakota is in a state of, of emergency, and they don't have to follow those same guidelines. It, it made me very aware of the absolute authority that our institutions can have over us as citizens, and it was it was terrifying. So it was a little over a full two days when they when they came and said, "All right, here are your charges," and they cuffed me and brought me to the to the court. I was holding the the piece of paper with the, the charges in my hand, reading through it, and the first one was conspiracy to theft of a public service, um, class one felony, uh, maximum potential sentence twenty years. Second charge conspiracy to damage a public utility, class one felony. Maximum sentence, 20 years. Third one was another conspiracy charge that was a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of five years. So here I was holding in my hand something telling me I was charged with felonies and misdemeanor that totaled 45 years maximum sentence um, for filming an action from a public road. And I, I, you know, I lost my shit. (laughs) I was... uh, I just, I was just like shaking and sobbing and just saying, I just kept saying, this is, this is insane. This is insane. I mean, my whole life just felt like it was just being stolen from me. Um, and walked into the courtroom and the state prosecutor said, because, you know, I had been nice, basically they, (laughs) they, uh, were reducing the bail and they weren't worried about me um, running or doing anything. So they said I could pay 10% of the, the $5,000 bail. And 
and went back to my cell and started making more phone calls, explaining what had happened. Um, I talked to a couple of lawyers that were both like, oh, we weren't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty, it's pretty stiff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, over how long was it? It was still a little while after that, that the, the bail was paid and all the, the paperwork went through and then they let me out. And yeah, I, it was, <laughs> it's all just so surreal. I got on the phone with, with my lawyer pretty quickly. I've never had a lawyer before, but <laughs> um, I've never even had detention before. Like this was just, this is so, <laughs> this is so out of, out of control, new territory. <laughs> I actually had two lawyers because out of state lawyers can't work with, can't, can't, you know, operate in another state without working with a local lawyer. Um, and, and both of them were amazing. My New York lawyer is, was, uh, Ron Kuby, who's pretty famous from civil rights cases, um, historically and has been in several movies and he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, and he took it on cause I think he was kind of entertained by it, but he was, he was fantastic and he definitely made me feel better that just in the absurdity of it and that we would fight this and, and, um, we'd, we'd figure it out. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was just, you know, hanging out, hanging out in this little town in Northern North Dakota, just, uh, I, I had no idea what to do, where to go. Like, <laughs> It was pretty isolating, and then it didn't take long for it to kind of blow up in terms of press and media. And so the the film that I had, had just finished working on was um, Josh Fox's third film in the Gasland series, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. Um, we had spent two years, well, more than two years, working on this this film. Um, you know, it went to Sundance. It was on HBO. Josh has like huge social media following and he was actually in the UK touring with the film doing um, the, I think he was at the London opening when he found out what, what the situation that I was in. Um, and he went on live streaming talking about my situation and, and that, that kind of spread around Facebook and stuff like crazy. And then I, I started getting calls from, reporters and news agencies and um, like journalism protection organizations and members of Congress and just people, <laughs> all sorts of people reaching out because it, it, I mean, had the potential to be such an enormous First Amendment case. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people became interested really quickly. And that was like a, a whole like opposite end of the spectrum craziness that I was also not used to. <laughs> being in, in front of people talking about my my own situation and my own experience yeah I mean being a filmmaker and, and sharing other people's stories and being behind the camera it was wasn't the most comfortable thing for me but I was aware the whole time that I had this this really huge and and powerful platform all of a sudden and there had been other arrests there had been a lot of arrests recently at Standing Rock um other 
journalists, filmmakers had had been arrested for documenting what was happening at Standing Rock, including Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! And um, Shailene Woodley was there, and she was live streaming when she was arrested. There were a lot of questions all of a sudden about um, First Amendment rights in North Dakota and First Amendment rights in relation to um, fossil fuel infrastructure. In addition to me being arrested on that day, in conjunction with that action, two filmmakers in Washington State covering covering the valve turning there, Lindsey Grazel and Carl Davis, were arrested and charged with felonies. And then after the fact, the, the filmmaker in Minnesota was mailed charges, trespassing charges. So, you know, within the span of a couple of weeks, there were all of these people from the media reporting on these things and being arrested with the same charges as the people that were um, acting. So that alarmed a whole lot of people, especially, you know, in the in October leading up to the election. And there was already a lot of talk about the role of media and freedom of the press and real news and um, to have to have people on the ground documenting firsthand being seemingly targeted um, seemed to be sending a message. Um, And whether it was, you know, designed that way, orchestrated that way, I don't know, but it it came off that way for sure for, for us. There was, there was like this, this two or three week period where it seemed like every day there was another, uh, sort of news story about a journalist covering some form of, of pipeline protest that mm-hmm. was getting arrested, right? And it was, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that had a significant impact on me, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it, it scared the shit out of me, you know? <laughs> I mean, it all it's yeah. like, all of a sudden, this realization of like, wow, like, you could totally be arrested just for doing your job, as you said, and like, even if you do your research as you did and, and, you know, are very cautious and make sure that you're not actually breaking any laws, like doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be, um, arrested and, 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 and penalized for, for your role in that. Um, and I mean, to be honest, it directly inspired me to, to go out to Standing Rock and and to spend a few days there and, and to get involved in, in covering what was going on out there. You know, people were asking me, do you think your story is going to keep other filmmakers and and journalists from from covering these things? And I said, um, you know, I think it's kind of going to do the opposite. (laughs) So I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you you went out there after knowing all this. People are just so in in disbelief that this could be happening and wanting to know more. And so going and and finding out being a journalist, being a reporter to get the truth that makes me happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean i don't think you know i'm i'm, cer- I'm certainly not alone in that right i mean um yeah. i mean to be honest i was you know i i was only able to spend a short period of time uh out at standing rock but i mean i was totally blown away by many aspects of of what i saw and what was going on um mm-hmm. but i mean something that stood out was you know the the, the number of journalists and, and reporters who were there and yeah. who uh, had sort of converged um, on this location, coming from all around the U.S. Um, and all around mm-hmm. the, all around the globe, really. And you know, I mean, such a wide variety of people, right? And I mean, I think there was this feeling of solidarity, you know, amongst people who 
you know, this is what they do as a profession, whether they're filmmakers or journalists in a more traditional sense or, or, or whatever, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, it definitely, it, it definitely had an impact in that sense. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you know, this, this sort of series of arrests that seemed like they were connected and, and all happened within a short period of time. I mean, obviously we can only speculate about, you know, the level mm-hmm. of sort of orchestration of that or whether that was intentional yeah. or just, you know, right. sort of, sort of coincidence. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I imagine that you've spent a fair amount of time sort of speculating on, on like the true reasoning behind your arrest, right? Uh, let me ask this. I assume that you never got your footage back. <laughs> Is that a safe assumption? Uh, that's a safe assumption. They said they would make uh, duplicate copies for me at least so I could have footage. Um, they still haven't done that. They told me that they were keeping it in evidence for the other trials the trials of the two guys that were arrested with me and those are happening in February. So presumably I will be getting that back after their, their trials. The first place that my mind goes, right. Is like, it it feels like an obvious attempt to make sure that that information doesn't get out to, to the wider public. Right. Like you have, like you documented this effort, you know, you were going to share this, uh, mm-hmm. uh, content that that you had captured, and you know the police who showed up had an opportunity to sort of stop that. Say like, no, we don't want this footage to get out there um, because we don't want this activity, this um, illegal activity, to sort of to get the exposure that 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 they're looking for, right? Yeah. I mean, is that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know like what my question is there. I mean, I'm just like uh, kind of thinking out loud. Like, I mean, is yeah, that's one of the possibilities? that I had considered. Um, and yeah, it is all, it is all speculative and it's a little tricky too, because it was a different, uh, jurisdiction and different prosecutor than, than was at standing rock. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's easier to, to make assumptions there. Um, when, when all the arrests were, you know, Morton County, department arrests and the, the same the same team and same person making the decisions to of, of who we get arrested and what people get charged with um that they would have something some you know objective in mind but this was um you know this was a few counties away and they they were asking repeatedly if this was connected to standing rock if this had anything to do with with Danny Rock, if it was directed by people there, anything like that. I know it was top of their minds, but yeah, I, I don't know how much they were actually in, in communication with law enforcement down there. It certainly feels more and more in 1984 as moving into the new administration and, and with all this freshly in mind. The other point, though, that this all brought up for me was the people are questioning, well, like, are you a real journalist and you're a filmmaker? You're not, you don't have the same rights that the press has. And then there are all these people that were like Shailene live streaming and documenting as kind of citizen journalists. And I've since been working on a, a film with some folks about Standing Rock and I, they have footage of the cops asking them, well, you're, are you news? Like what, what agency are you with? What are, where are your credentials? Like, and because of the, you know, because of the media landscape right now, there is a blurring of 
who is media, who is news. And when the news is dominated by like talking heads and pundits and people speculating and people on the ground are reporting firsthand live events, like which, which of those things is more actual news? Um, and the, the bigger question there is should, I mean, should individual citizens be denied freedom of speech and be denied the right to, to record and be denied basic First Amendment coverage, it it becomes less about press and more about every citizen's fundamental rights. It puts all this stuff in a different context, right? Because there is this, I mean, it's a lot of gray area, right? I mean, anybody can be a journalist, anybody, you know, who has a cell phone and the ability to sort of live stream or even just capture, capture video footage or audio or, or anything. I mean... Mm-hmm. Bam, you're a journalist, right? I mean, one of the things that, that really stood out to me, the the one action that, that I went out on and, and documented during the time that, that I was at Sandy Rock, um, it, it took place in Bismarck, mm-hmm. um, and it was covered by traditional journalists, right? Like the local, yeah. like local ABC News uh, uh, reporters were there. And, you know, it was very obvious that they were uh, sort of traditional style journalists, right? Like you could tell right. they had like a thousand different badges attached to them, you know, yeah. so that the police could very obviously tell like, hey, I'm a legit journalist. I'm not one of these, you know, crazy people that's just following the protesters around, right? Yeah. Because of that, I mean, I actually felt really safe right like i felt like there was no there was no chance that that these police were going to start arresting the people who were covering this action because of that but like the vast majority of the actions that have taken place you know revolving around standing rock like don't have that right like right. these your local abc news reporter who's going to be you know on the evening news in bismarck like he's not driving down to to Standing Rock every day to cover sort of the daily actions that are happening, you know, on the ground, like at the site where the pipeline, where they're trying to to, to build the pipeline. But like, that's more important, right? I mean, (laughs) so it's like, who's the real journalist, right? Um, and, and, And then you talk about like how, okay, you have this, you know, this reporter who is like seen for sure by the police as like a legitimate journalist, right? But like, how many people is this guy reaching? Like, how many people are watching, you know, the local ABC News affiliate, you know, at 10 o'clock that night versus how many people are watching the live stream, you know, from the Standing Rock tribal member um, who's just, he was just, had his camera, he's just holding it out, like, while he was giving one of his speeches during the protest. And I would bet that more people were watching that live stream than the people who watched, like, the local ABC News in Bismarck that night, you know? So it's like, who's the real journalist, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the people at the bridge on that night of the worst attacks there, I don't know what what the total number was, but I was watching that go down on somebody's live stream, and it was just thousands and thousands and, and yeah, everybody was, was tuned in. I think I'm really glad that because of this election cycle, people are asking all these questions of the media and of truth. And I think people are hungry for primary sources and people being, you know, on the ground. So there are less degrees of, of interpretation and separation between the truth of a situation and and what the public is learning about it. 
so getting back to this question that I, I sort of threw at, at you of like, you know, how can we speculate about sort of what was going through the mind of these law enforcement uh, officers who arrested you, right? And they're, you know, I mean, we can spec like, we don't know this for sure, right? We don't know if it was a coordinated effort or not. You know, they yeah. they may have been, you know, their mindset may have been like, we just want to get this footage so that it can't get out. Um, but in reality, like what they did by arresting you was they blew this whole issue up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it right. totally backfired. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a result of what happened, the, the action that you were covering got a ton more coverage <laughs> than it would have otherwise, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's almost like the, these folks are sort of stuck in this, this older mindset and, and sort of, you know, aren't aware or maybe they're learning the hard way, you know, yeah. what the best way to sort of quash these actions might be. And, of course, who knows what would have happened in your situation um, if we didn't live in this sort of new era of social media um, where, you know, Josh Fox can go live stream from London and, you know, mm -hmm. share with his, like, thousands and thousands of followers, like, you know, what happened to, to, to you um, and, and sort of, you know, get the ball rolling and like spread the word and it snowballs. And now, it, you know, it, mm -hmm. it sort of blows up, like you said, like, who knows what, what would have happened if like that hadn't been possible. Um, right. right? But that was possible. And that did happen. And at this point, it seems like there's, there's no way that, that um, they can follow through on these charges, because it would just take it to the next level and, and explode, you know, backfire sort of in their faces even worse. So, I mean, uh, I, I guess at, at this point, like, maybe you can tell us like what the current status of, of your case is and where you expect things to go from here. So a month or six weeks or so ago, they, uh, they being North Dakota agreed to suspend my charges, essentially putting them on the back burner. So, they have they have a lot of other charges they're dealing with right now, so they agreed that they would put mine aside, and as long as I didn't commit a crime or have possession of a firearm, that was kind of a random addition they put in there, that after six months, my charges would be dropped and my record would be cleared. Hmm. So until May, basically, I can't get <laughs> arrested and charged and convicted with with the crime. So I, I, um, I don't plan on doing any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Though I didn't plan on this one happening. Um, so on one hand, I feel really fortunate that this is in all likelihood going to go away. But on the other hand, like I haven't gone to standing rock to report when I've wanted to, because I am afraid of going back to North Dakota and, you know, getting swept up in something else. 45 years worth of charges is a lot to hang, a lot to have hanging over my head. It hasn't kept me from, from talking and speaking out about things, but, but yeah, it has made me reluctant to, to go and be part of anything where there's a potential to get arrested. Right. And I mean, yeah. that's your job, right? I mean, and it's, that's it's, my like, job. it's, it's essentially yeah. preventing you from, from, from doing your job, right? Yeah. A certain aspect yeah. of it. Right. And that's really disturbing. And I don't want I don't want to let it limit me like that. But yeah, that's kind of the reality that I'm that I'm in until May. Yeah. 
So how about the the other activists that that were involved in in that action that you were documenting? What what what's the status of of their charges? They are all um, coming up on their trials soon. Um, the first one was supposed to be starting on Monday, um, and that was Ken out in Washington, um, the one that Lindsay was filming where, where she was also arrested. Um, and I've actually teamed up with her. Um, she's been making a movie about Ken for years. This is like kind of the, the end of the story that she's covering in that film is, is this action and, and the, the court case. But he and the other valve turners are planning to argue the necessity defense whenever, whenever possible, whenever they're allowed to. Um, which, which is basically saying they, they have taken all legal steps to alleviate this huge problem and it hasn't worked. And so they've taken the next step. It's kind of like a, a lesser evil kind of defense. The simplest analogy is like if there's a burning building and you know somebody's inside, you, you break the law and you trespass, you break and enter to go save somebody inside the burning building and, and rescue them. That's kind of the, the argument they're making with, with the necessity defense here, saying it was necessary to you know trespass and interfere with private property. They're saying public infrastructure, but in order to to prevent worsening global climate change, there's a, a set of parameters that they have to to meet in order to be able to argue that defense, and that's all you know happening in the next few weeks. So there will be um, hopefully a lot of a lot of coverage of that. Um, Ken's, yeah, Ken's is supposed to start Monday, but we'll see, um, there might be some scheduling changes and then Michael's is, is also supposed to be happening in the next couple of weeks. They're all coming up pretty quickly here. And as long as I'm on the, the record here and this is going out to people, I'd love to share the website to find out more about their cases and, and keep up to, up to speed and possibly support them. Um, is it shut it down dot today is yeah where all that info is awesome yeah and i can definitely um i can share that that link on the show notes page for this episode as well so folks um can have access to that and can follow um what's going on there which is super fascinating i mean i i would imagine that it has the potential to set a precedent right for which which would be extremely (laughs) important for future cases and 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 also for folks you know activists who are planning future actions like that as well um it's so it's Huge. It's absolutely huge. It would be, I mean, as you said, precedent setting, like in legally and morally, ethically. Yeah, really significant. You've mentioned Standing Rock a few times. You were in North Dakota when this craziness went down that you just told us about. And, you know, you you talked a little bit about how, you know, it was clear that like the arresting officers like had Standing Rock at the forefront of their mind um, when they showed up you got some questions about whether or not this action was connected to Standing Rock. I mean, was it? Was there a connection? I mean, obviously there's like a connection, like big picture, like conceptually, right? Right. But was there, I mean, was there anything beyond that? Um, Well, the the day before folks at Standing Rock had called out for, for a day of action and solidarity. So that did have an impact on the timing of this action and the, messaging of this action it was done in solidarity it, mm-hmm. it was done as part of the same fight mm-hmm. 
Have you spent time at Standing Rock? You mentioned that you have sort of been wanting to to, to, <laughs> to go there since your arrest, but, you know, have for obvious reasons, like, felt right. that, that that was too risky. Uh, I mean, did you have a chance to uh, spend any time there before this happened? No, I actually was um, thinking about heading out there after covering this action that I was arrested for. I thought, I'll spend a couple of days in, in northern North Dakota, I'll film this, and then I'll head over to Standing Rock and cover that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that didn't go as planned. So uh, I didn't. I did not actually get out there. You mentioned that you are currently working on a film that has some connections to, to Standing Rock and, and what's been going on out there. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the this the, the film project you're working on and sort of what I mean. I mean what what's sort of the central theme of of this the story that you're working on and at, at what stage are you at? Sure. Well, there there are a couple projects that are kind of related to this. Um, the first I'm, I'm a producer on, it's not my film at all. It's, uh, it's a piece that Josh, um, is putting together, but it's, it's three filmmakers, um, with kind of their three different experiences at Standing Rock tied together kind of, um, thematically and a little bit stylistically, um, into one film. And it's, it's, they're pieces by Josh Fox, uh, James Spion, and uh, Myron Dewey, who is an indigenous reporter. They fit together really beautifully. They all approach the events very, very differently, but it, they fit together in a really cool way. And we're figuring out distribution for that right now. The other film is the one that, that Lindsay has been working on about Ken over the, the last several years and his life's struggle to figure out how to best address this issue and how to how to live and and exist in a world that doesn't seem to be feeling the impending impacts that the way that he is seeing them it's Lindsay's film and and i've come on as as a producer there to help finish filming and and do what i can to to get it out to get finish it up and get it out to the world and so yeah i'm going to be heading out to washington for ken's trial and and shooting that with her and it's so compelling <laughs> um just the the parts that she has finished over the past few years and ken is such an interesting wonderful human and as a as a character framed by this issue uh, it's just it's fascinating to watch because i think he embodies what so much of us struggle with who are who are aware of bigger picture issues and and long-term climate ramifications it's sometimes difficult as a filmmaker to sort of understand the perspective of your target audience for Absolutely. for a story right yeah, <laughs> um totally. that said you know i definitely feel like there is this shift in the filmmaking world as far as how we cover the climate change issue. Um, and, you know, just a few years ago, uh, you know, I feel like sort of the, the standard model for like a climate change film was to um, sort of present the issue, explain how dire it is, show the science, um, and then present, you know, the, 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 the ways that, that you, the audience, you know, all you people yeah. who watch this film, like, this is what you can do to help. And we really can solve this problem. And like, right. you know, here are all the great solutions that we have, um, get involved, which 
you know, that message, like, it doesn't feel genuine anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, what does feel genuine are these, these stories uh, about, you know, individuals or groups of people um, and, and just showing, like, what they are doing and showing their sort of struggle um, to, to, to deal with this crisis. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that really resonates with me, right? Because I can connect with that. I, I can relate to that. You know, uh, yeah. that, that's a struggle that, that, that I'm going through as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. That old model feels delusional at this point. Like we know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. We're so far beyond that. It's more of an existential question at this point. I'll just say that, you know, I mean, I think that the film that you worked on with, with Josh Fox, How to Let Go of the World and, and Love All the Things That Climate Can't Change, um, I mean, that's a really beautiful expression of that idea, I feel like. Um, it's not like one particular character, it's a whole group of characters that uh-huh. um, that, that you guys followed. But it's sort of, it, it's, it's almost like a blend of those two models, right? It's like, yeah. you know, you start off with like, oh my God, this issue is so dire and it's so overwhelming. Um, and I just feel like giving up. And then like the whole rest of the film is sort of like showing all these individual stories and showing how people are sort of working to, to you know, to forward this cause um, and sort of using that as inspiration to sort of not give up and, and to continue fighting um, yeah. despite how and, dire it seems right and nobody's saying yes we can fix this but but more like this is what we need to hang on to to make it through what we have coming mm-hmm. yeah i i was i mean before i even saw that film i was mm-hmm. just like the title itself like stood yeah. out as like okay <laughs> i need to watch this film like this totally fits into like the framework in my mind of how I've been thinking about the climate change issue and, and, you know, over the yeah. past couple of years. Um, awesome. Uh, really, really amazing work on that film. I actually had the opportunity to, to, to see, to see that film um, when Josh came through Boise, um, oh, where cool. I live, touring with it. So I got to, um, to meet Josh uh, briefly awesome. and, and see the screening here, which is, which was really amazing. You know, so normally, normally these are questions I ask at the beginning of an interview, but I kind of wanted to jump into like sort of the meat of this right at the beginning. But I'm curious about sort of your path towards becoming a documentary filmmaker. So you and I met a few years back at the International Wildlife Film Festival. And, you know, the thing that sticks out in my mind from, you know, the few brief conversations we had was uh, like some stories that you told me about this amazing adventure that you had uh, years ago. Um, in South America, uh, hiking across the Andes. But that was before you sort of took this path towards becoming a filmmaker. I mean, yeah. how, how did that sort of happen? And like, could you have envisioned like your sort of life going in this direction, you know, maybe like 10 years ago? Um, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was in the middle of that hike. Um, <laughs> so for your listeners that don't <laughs> know what that was i spent two years um with my partner at the time greg trinish backpacking the length of the andes it was a 7800 mile hike <laughs> um most of it was bushwhacking and <laughs> um or scrambling but um yeah it was it was uh it was toward the end of that hike that i that i realized that this this filmmaking documentary path was what I wanted to, to, you know, pursue. Um, I had, I had my, my background before that was in visual communications. 
So I was doing um, a lot of design work for, for nonprofits and environmental organizations, and then also um, environmental education. Um, I got a degree in earth and planetary science and kind of went the education route there doing um, environmental ed, outdoor ed um, kind of stuff. And, and that led to wilderness therapy, working with at-risk, in quotes, air quotes, um, kids going on backpacking trips and like being their their guides and instructors and um but all all toward this end of trying to encourage people to value big picture thinking in terms of the the earth and the environment and their place as part of that um whether that be through education or through printed material or you know, and on the, this massive hike, um, I, I started thinking about doing photojournalism and, and, and that approach to it. And then it was, it was kind of this slow motion epiphany of, wait a second, documentary filmmaking is using all of those things in one medium to reach a large audience and, and not tell people what to do, but communicate directly with their hearts. And I think that's what makes people start to do things differently. The way to change people's outlook and way of being isn't to tell them to change their outlook and way of being. It's to connect with them. And film has this incredible power to to do that, to tap right into people's emotions and make contact with what they really value. So it's, it's like this magical trojan horse kind of medium <laughs> um, i love that that's awesome um, <laughs> and it uh, combined everything i loved doing it combined being in the field and and art and education and dorking out over re- environmental research and just everything that i was into and felt like i was competent at in into one under one umbrella once that clicked for me, it was, was kind of like, oh, duh, <laughs> why, didn't I, why didn't I see this sooner? Um, and, but I, I think a large part of that was that I, I didn't think of filmmaking as like a viable career because it, it's not like a super clear path by any means. Everybody in filmmaking understands that there's not like a track you set yourself upon and follow. It's, it's kind of a make your own way and and figure out what you want to do and do it kind of kind of job. I think that's why I was kind of late to the party there. Yeah, I can I can totally relate to that. And, and you know, I, I think you're definitely right that there's there's no sort of like set track. It's it's like everybody who succeeds as a filmmaker, I feel like has a different story about what that track looks like and, and how, mm-hmm. you know, what that path, um, how, how they sort of made that path and, and, and sort of got to the point they are. I mean, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. no two stories are, are sort of alike. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, I mean, you know, you had this, this amazing opportunity to, to work with Josh Fox on his latest film, sort of part mm-hmm. three of his Gasland trilogy, which, you know, for, for somebody that is, you know, in this profession, like that works in this space as, as a filmmaker focused on conservation issues, Gasland and, and Josh Fox's work are, are sort of it's 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 like an awesome example of like a, a, a film that 
had a really dramatic impact um, yeah. on, on yeah. the issue. You know, I mean, uh, Gasland really brought the the fracking and, and natural gas extraction issue into sort of the public light in a way that, that it really wasn't um, beforehand. People often ask me sort of like, what's what's the power of a film really? Like, how can mm-hmm. you really measure that impact? And like, how do you really know that you're, you know, having an impact on people? And like, that's something that I struggle with, right? And it's, it's difficult to measure the impact that a film has, right? But mm-hmm. you can take a film like Gasland that had a really obvious and dramatic impact and sort of point to that as an example um, and to say like, see, look, like, this medium can really like really does have the potential to have a, a really dramatic impact in a way that that other mediums don't. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I say that just to kind of put it into context of like the fact that you got this opportunity to, to um, you know, be a producer on uh, Josh Fox's film. I mean, that in, in my mind, that means you made it. I mean, you're you're at the top of the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, so I mean, I guess I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, how did you get to that point? I mean, how did, how did you meet Josh initially? And like, how did that, um, how did that whole process yeah. start? Uh, well, we met in a gondola <laughs> over a bottle of champagne. Um, so I was at a uh, mountain film in Telluride. I had made a film, uh, called backyard about, uh, the, the human costs, um, of fracking followed several different people's stories and, from very different backgrounds and in different states, all struggling with the impacts of, of fracking on their lives. It was at Mountain Film as they were beginning to think about making making their film Dear Governor Hickenlooper. It was about fracking in Colorado, and they, they were kind of using it as an example of uh, these stories they wanted to collect to make that film. Um, but anyways, it, it was they're the same year that Gasland two was at, was at mountain film. And I went to the Gasland two screening was in line to take the gondola back down to town after that screening. And Josh was a few people in front of me in line. And I thought, well, this is, this is silly. I should just, um, I should just jump in that gondola. Cause I'm sure we know tons of the same people and I would love to talk to him. And so I did, and um we sure enough like got to talking and had a ton of overlap and people and and big picture concerns and philosophies and kept hanging out throughout that festival um stayed in touch and then a couple years later he was just starting to work on this film and wanted to come out to Colorado to shoot results of massive wildfires outside of Fort Collins um, didn't have many filmmaker connections in the West. We got in touch. Like he, he wanted to do a few day shoot about these wildfires. I said, I'd love to come on and second camera. And he said, great. We met up, we shot about on wildfires for a few days and things were going really well. We started following other stories that were, that were developing. We, we kept, you know, as you do when you're making a documentary film, talk to people and they say, Oh, you need to go talk to this person. You need to go check out this. So we were just kind of following all of those leads. Um, and it was just the two of us. And I told him that this idea that he, of this film that he was making was kind of what made me decide that I wanted to be a filmmaker in the first place. Um, 
when I was in the Andes, the film I wanted to make that set me off on this path was this idea of Canary communities. And, and I mean, this was 2006 to 2008. So it was, this was before Inconvenient Truth came out. Um, but I was seeing these communities that had been displaced by climate change already, like communities that had relied on glaciers for their, for their water supply. And the glaciers had, had dried up, had melted. So there were all these abandoned towns that, that we were seeing walking through the Andes. And there were already all these people that were profoundly impacted by climate change that nobody was talking about, nobody was hearing about. And that's the film that I wanted to make that made me decide to be a filmmaker. And so here I was working with Josh, and he's essentially saying he wants to make this film about communities that have already seen and felt the impacts of climate change. It was a little like, oh, my God, I need to. I need to make this film with you. <laughs> and I, I pretty much told him that. And I, I was like, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your team is. I don't know what, what, uh, you have going, but I, I, I want to stay involved in this film in, in some capacity. Um, and he basically said, well, I need a producer. You seem to be producing pretty well. Uh, let's see how this goes. <laughs> so we, we kept shooting for a few weeks. We ended up buying this crappy little car off on, on Craigslist so we could just keep going and shot all around the West, shot several stories about wildfires, um, beetle kill up in Wyoming, and then kept going and filmed at the, in the Bakken area in North Dakota. We were at the, the three affiliated tribes, reservation area in North Dakota and got stories about how the the industry had just completely fractured the tribes and just all the, the corruption going on there. And these incredible stories, a lot of them didn't end up in the film just because, I mean, as you know, it's already over two hours. We had to cut a lot of incredible stuff. But yeah, I, after that point, I, I basically, I'd been living in Bozeman six and a half years and we decided separately and simultaneously that I kind of needed to move to New York to just make this happen. So I packed up my life there, which was extremely difficult. Um, I had an amazing community and, and relationship and my whole, I had a fantastic life <laughs> in Postman, but felt like I needed to see this through. So moved out to New York and just went full bore on this film for the next couple of years. I can imagine that that would be a difficult transition. I mean, I've <laughs> I've spent a fair amount of time in New York City, but it always yeah. it always it's always a place where I'm like, oh, it was, it was nice to visit here, but I don't know if right, I, right. if I'd want to live here permanently. Right? Yeah, and coming from like the most beautiful little town in the mountains, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a uh, an adjustment, but the other side of that coin is just because I I did want to focus more on human stories and social justice kind of stuff, you know, there's a heck of a lot more opportunity to find those stories in New York than in Bozeman. Um, every day I'm reminded how interesting and wonderful and fascinating people are. Just so many people, so many stories, so much history and, and the human system that exists here is just endlessly fascinating. So as much as I miss, miss the mountains, I am occupied at least for now by i don't know the daily reminder of how incredible humanity and culture is <laughs> 
that's I think a noble task, right? Is to sort of be there in in a city like New York that seems so separate from the natural world, but to be there sort of both reminding people, but also sort of showing, you know, using human stories to show that that there are these connections, no matter where you are, right? Between the natural world, conservation efforts, and human communities, right? Yeah, we are the natural world. We are of it and <laughs> part of it. And I think it's important to, to see ourselves that way, that we are not separate from the natural world. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I, th- I think that's I think that's a good note to sort of uh, uh, wrap things up here. So I will um, say thank you for um, for coming on to the show and, and sharing all of these amazing stories. Um, I mean, I really appreciate your willingness to sort of share this really crazy and intense story about, you know, what what happened to you when you were arrested in North Dakota. Uh, I'm sure it's not an easy experience to sort of recount over and over again, but um, I, I appreciate your willingness to do that because I, I think it's important for people to hear that, right? Um, so, yeah, thanks a lot um, for sharing your perspective. Uh, it's yeah. been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, that was our conversation with filmmaker Dea Schlossberg. It's clear in talking with Dea that she has taken on this role as a spokesperson for the climate change movement with extreme reluctance. However, it's also clear just how passionate she is about her work. Dea was thrown into a very unexpected situation, which, although it was traumatizing and and crazy, it also gave her a platform to talk about the issues she cares about, and she has certainly not shied away from taking advantage of this opportunity. I'm super excited to check out both of the new films that Dea is working on currently, and we'll have information and links on the show notes page to help you stay informed about these projects, as well as the issues that Dea is covering. These show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC107. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC107. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes, which really helps us reach more people and spread awareness on the topics that we cover here. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>